0: Hi, thanks for joining us again as we study the book of Numbers. We're in Numbers chapter 31 in our series of Wilderness Wanderings. And as we go into Numbers 31, it's a difficult passage. It's a very interesting one. Uh, A lot of things get wrapped up in this passage, and yet a lot of things left unsaid. And uh, it causes some difficulties, which we'll talk about as we go through the passage. Have you ever had those moments where... uh, and when you're watching a movie or reading a book, you sometimes call them the aha moments where you're like, oh, wow, and everything starts to come together. I remember sometimes watching movies where all of a sudden in the last two or three moment, minutes of the movie, everything just comes together and you're like, oh, all that, 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 that. It all came to, to conclusion. I really like Charles Dickens' books. I love reading Dickens. And one of my favorites that uh, I like to read is The Tale of Two Cities. And I love how everything comes. I remember the first time reading it when you're getting to the end and all of a sudden you're realizing, wait a second, Sidney Carton, one of, the, one of the men in the book, is going to actually exchange himself and give his life on behalf of, because of the love for Lucy and because of his con- concern and er- all the light bulbs just clicking like, whoa, and all, all these little uh, strings that were left all of a sudden get tied up really neatly. Well, Numbers 31 is going to be that passage where, when we look at it, it's going to address a lot of the other things that are out there. But you would initially first think, well, this is just a battle against MIDI, and there's, there's not a whole lot more to it. But this passage deals with a number of topics. In fact, it deals with the vengeance on Midian. It deals with Moses' death. It's going to deal with the trumpets. It's going to deal with Zor, who is the father of Cosby. He's going to deal with Balaam and Baal Peor. It's going to deal with the purification laws and care for the priests of Le- and Levites. All of these are items or topics or places or people that have already been brought up or addressed in the book of Numbers. But Numbers 31 is not just about that. It also brings out new dynamics, such as holy war. It brings out the dividing of spoils, which is going to be important in the new, new promised land. It's going to deal with the offerings that are going to be given to the Lord. This chapter is really what it does is it ties everything up. It deals with the unfinished business that's already been brought up in the book of Numbers, especially Numbers 25. And so it brings to conclusion some some things that have gone before in the book. In fact, Numbers 25 is that backstory to Numbers 31. We've spent a few weeks here dealing with the census and the laws and some of the, the things that were inserted by Moses in between Numbers 25 and 31. But Numbers 25 is that backstory. Do you remember it? Balaam, who was the uh, sorcerer from another area, came to curse Israel and to do that for Balak, for Moab and Midian. And this confederacy that they had was unable to do that. And Balaam is going to be rejected by Balak. He's going to retire. But Balaam really wants that money, really wants the greed. Uh, He is very greedy. And so he uh, figures out another way. He advises them to say, take the Moabite women and use them to seduce the men, to entice them into immorality. And when they do, that's going to then allow the opportunity for them to practice idolatry. And then that will bring about the judgment of God. And we know that it works because remember what happened in Numbers 25. God at Shatim sends a plague and 24,000 of those Israelites are put to death. But do you remember happens at the end. How is that plague stopped? Phineas, the son of Eliezer, Phineas is a priest, is going to see these two individuals, one of them being Cosby, who we'll talk about here in a minute, and he sees them go into a tent, and he takes a, a, a spear, and he impales them, and that wards off, stays the plague. And at the very end of the chapter, verses 17 and 18, God tells Moses, you are going to vex and you are going to strive against, you're going to go to war against the Midianites and you're going to deal with them and we're going to have that. Well, then you get this interlude dealing with the census and dealing with the inheritances and and the the questions that are going to arise and we then find ourselves now in Numbers 31. So after that, that interlude there, Numbers 31 is the Lord initiating the conflict with Midian. We see that occur in verses 1 and 2. It says, And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Avenge the children of Israel, of the Midianites. Afterwards you shall be gathered unto thy people. So the, the justice is going to be meted out. The judgment, the verdict is in, and now it is judgment day. And so the message to Moses was clearly this, avenge the children of Israel. Now this is not the idea of just a revenge, but rather it is God vindicating the righteous and punishing the evildoer. He is going to go against Midian who incited the sinfulness And so that happens. And punishing sin, we have to remember, is an essential part of the ethical, moral, the just character of God. And it's important to remember throughout this study is that God is at war with sin. God hates sin. His holy, just nature does not uh, do well with sin. He is totally, completely other, separate from sin. One commentator wrote it this way. God is not out for retaliatory revenge, but for the vindication of the honor of his people and himself, and ultimately for the restoration for the well-being of humanity. God's not in this situation just because I don't like the Midianites, so I'm going to wipe them out. He is dealing with sin, those who are enticing others to sin. He's dealing with sinfulness. And so God is at war with sin. The other message that is given to Moses in this is very, a sobering thought. But in verse two, it says, afterward, you shall be gathered to your people. What's God telling Moses? This is going to be your last, your final uh, work experience as a leader of Israel. And after this, it's, it's going to be time that you're going to be, like said to Aaron, brought and gathered to your people. Moses, you're going to die soon. Your, your time on this earth is short and it is done. So Moses faithfully, ending well, Moses faithfully tells the Israelites the marching orders that God gives to them. We get those marching orders in verses 3 through 6. How are they supposed to get? Is it the entire army? Is it the entire nation going against Midian? What's going to happen? He tells them, you're going to arm yourself on behalf of the Lord. The Lord is the one who is at the heart of this. The Lord is the one who's driving this. This is not Israel's uh, just hatred for an ethnic group or Israel's despise toward people who may be different than them. This is God saying, you are going to go forward. Moses says, arm yourself um, unto war and let them go against the Midianites and avenge the Lord uh, of the Midianites. So we have that there is going to be an equal presence we're going to see in verses four and five. A thousand people from each tribe. They're going to be uni, uni, unified, un, unified. Wow, I can say that. A, a unified effort that is that is going forward. It's not just one or two nations. It's not just a group of uh, just one tribe. It is a thousand from each tribe going forward. They're going to be led, verse six, by Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the priest, to war with the holy instruments, and the trumpets to blow in his hand, so we have these, these silver trumpets that were created earlier in numbers. We have the holy instruments that are going to be and Phineas, the one who started this, start, staved off the plague and started the, the, the initial conquest he 's going to finish his business he 's going to go and lead these children of Israel, this, this contingent group of people, not the full army, into battle against these these Midianites. Why didn't he go? Why wasn't the high priest sent? Many believe it's because the goal was to keep the high priest uh, sanctified, holy, not unclean, which would happen, the contamination could happen, being in battle and in war, with those who uh, who die. We know that from Numbers uh, 19 that, that that talks about. And he says, you will bring the holy instruments. What the holy instruments are, we're not 100% sure. Is it the Ark of the Covenant? Is it some of the other vessels? We know the trumpets, but what about those other holy instruments? Is it just the Ark, but it's plural? So it's instruments plural. We're not real sure. It makes sense if the Ark would go because we know historically that becomes a consistent habit in the Jewish battles that the Ark of the Covenant is going to go with them. It could be but we just don't know. But we do know that there is a lot of spiritual dynamic going on here. A priest leading, holy instruments that are going, the trumpets from the tabernacle to, to come, to bring, to blow, to give instruction. We know that, that that is all happening. So they have their marching orders. And then what happens in verses 7-8? It reminds me of when Caesar says, uh, Veni, vidi, vici. When he says, I came, I saw, I conquered. I mean, He doesn't even go into detail. It's just like, this is what happened. And you see that in verses seven and eight. It's very simple. I mean, they warred against the Midianites as the Lord commanded. They slew all the males. They slew all the kings. It gives the names of the kings. Uh, verse eight, it's gonna talk a little bit. Verse 10, that they, uh, that they burnt all the cities down, the strongholds and the, and the tented cities. And they, they raised them all and that was done. And that's really all we get in regard to the story with, with the Midianites here. It's not like when later on in, in the books of Judges where it's laid out all the different battle plans and everything that happens, or even in uh, Joshua. This is just very quick and to the point. There's, there's not much, but what is brought out is that they followed the commandments of the Lord. They followed the commandments. In fact, it's gonna come up a number of times in here when you read through it, that they were following what God had said. They were, doing, they were following their marching orders. The focus is not on the battle, but really it's on the faith of the Israelites here. Not on the intricacies of how they defeated them, but that they by faith went forward and God God blessed them. The results of the battle, we see that they killed all the males that we have here. That that comes up in verse 7, or verse 8. Nope. Yeah. Uh, verse 7. That was right the first time. Uh, they slew all the males. So that's that's good, but one of the questions, remember there's a lot of difficulties of things that pop up. Skeptics will look at this passage and have questions about it, about the God of the Old Testament, about the accuracy of the Old Testament. They, they talk about, well, if they slew all the males, then how did Gideon fight against the Midianites in Judges chapter 7, 6 through 8? How did, how did that happen? Well, there's a, there's a couple possibilities here. Uh, one very legitimate one is that they slew all the males. They killed all the males that they found. There could have been other Midianite males that weren't present that were somewhere else when, when the Israelites came through. And so every Midianite male that they found, they killed. Another potential option is the fact that Midian was considered a confederacy. It was a region if you remember, J- uh, Jethro, Moses's father-in-law, was called a Midianite, and yet he's way down in the south. Uh, Heber, another another uh, individual who helped out the the Jews in the journey, he's considered a Midianite. But the Moabites—they're all in this area of Midian, and so Midian was considered this general region. So is it that they went through the entire region? Or did they go to this section of Midian, maybe near the Moabite contingency, maybe right where Israel was, because we know that they sent the, their ladies in from that area. And did they just go to that area and kill, but not all the other people who were labeled as Midianites. And so we're not real sure, but I think either one of those are very legitimate possibilities. We know that all the men that they, they seem to, to see, they killed. They killed. Now, it goes on that they also killed the kings of Midian, and one in particular is Zor. Zor was, back in 2515, we know that his daughter was Cosby. Cosby was the one lady who was going into the tent that Phineas saw and went through and killed, and this was his daughter that he had sent in to help in this battle. And so we know that Interestingly, he has killed all the other ones. They were all in that confederacy. They were uh, involved with Sihon and Og who were killed earlier. Uh, so all these individuals, very pagan, very against God, very, uh, not in favor of Israel coming into the area, but they were t- taken out. Another individual, did you notice in verse, verse number 8, very end it says, Balaam also, the son of Beor, was slew with the sword. So Balaam, do you remember though, it's interesting, what did Balaam say? Remember back in uh, er, earlier in chapter 23, verse 10, Balaam longed for the death of the righteous. In other words, he said, I wanted to die like those in Israel. He had the opportunity, he wanted to, to die with the care, the protection of God. He had the opportunities to, to side with the Jews, to identify with the God the God Jehovah. He had those opportunities, and yet he chose his worldliness. He chose his greed. And how does he end up dying? He doesn't die the death of a righteous, but he dies a violent death by the sword, uh, as it it talks about here. And he's he's killed. And that is the end of Balaam, though we hear about Balaam later on in the, the New Testament. When Israel acts, when we look at this, when Israel acts in obedience to God, which is what they were doing, there is victory there is blessing. The fullness of life is theirs. God blesses those who are obedient. We, we have seen that throughout this book. And God is just tying up that loose end and saying, I've showed it to you time and time again. I've told it to you. Obey me. Follow my commands. Follow me. Live by faith. Walk the way I tell you to walk, and there will be victory, and there will be blessing, and there will be a fullness of life that is brought to those who do it. Now, as with any war, there's an aftermath. There is uh, there's prisoners of war. There's uh, spoils. There's uh, the land that's been burned and ravaged. What what all goes through? What happens with this? So verses nine through eighteen is going to talk about some of that aftermath and some of the things and how do they deal? How do the Israelites deal with all of these different items that they're going to to get from conquering the Midianites? What happens? So we know in verse nine it says that all the women. Uh, the children of Israel took all the women of Midian captive and their little ones and took the spoils of their cattle and their flocks and all their goods. They burnt the cities wherein they dwelt and all the goodly castles, the strongholds with fire. And they took all the spoil and all the prey, both men and of both men and beast. And they brought the, uh, the captives and the prey and the spoils unto Moses and Eleazar the priest and unto the congregation of the children of Israel and the camp of the plains of Moab, uh, which are uh, by Jordan near Jericho. So it's basically wars done and they've made this big parade of bringing all the items back everything they've captured and conquered they're now bringing it back and they bring it before Moses and the congregation and Eleazar and they're all there and so what do they do with the women and children what what happens in this case it's, it's really interesting, and I, and I wrestled with this, and this is one of the things like, oh, God, God is just totally in flavor, favor of slavery, and God has just taken these individuals, and now all of these women and children are complete slaves, and they're just considered property to the, to the children of Israel. And so as I was studying, I'm like, okay, how do, we, how do we do that? Go with me to Deuteronomy chapter 20. Deuteronomy chapter 20, God is going to highlight a little bit about how are you to go to war israel and he 's going to give some, some he 's going to give two different responsibilities he 's going to talk about for those cities outside the promised Land and those that are inside the promised land and he 's going to say there 's going to be two different dynamics that that occur here in chapter twenty, if you go down to, to verse number uh, ten it 's going to when you come nigh to a city and fight against it then proclaim peace unto it. And if they, they give in, then, you know, you're going to let them go. But if they, if they don't give in, and you have to go to battle with them, verse, uh, verse 13, the Lord said, Deliver into thy hands, thou shalt smite every male thereof with the edge of the sword, which is what they just did. But the women and the little ones and the cattle and all that is in the city, even the spoils thereof, you shall take to yourself, you shall eat of the spoils uh, which the Lord has given you thus you shall do to all the cities which are very far off from thee, which are not of the cities of these nations. So, and he's gonna talk about which nations. He's gonna talk about in verse 17, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, uh, the, all the Jebusites, all of those in the Canaan area. So those who are outside, Midian is outside the promised land. Midian is not in the promised land. And he, he says for them, you're going to take all the cattle. You're going to bring, the, bring the, the people in and be servants or other options, which we'll talk about here in a second. They teach, um, but you shall utterly destroy, verse 17, those who are in the land, everything that breathes. They teach you uh, anything that, that breathes, you're going to put to death. So those in the land, they're going to be, um, they're, they're be put to death, men, women, children. Those outside the land, all the men were going to be put to death. And that is just part of the atrocities of war. Some of those things happen. Now, you ask why? Look at verse 18 of chapter 20. That they teach you not to do after all their abominations, which they have done unto their gods, so should you sin against the Lord your God. God is saying when you go into the land, you are going to purge Canaan, from all of that which is pagan, all of that which is anti-God, all of those who would uh, set themselves up or were used in sacrifices against, or for pagan rituals against, against our holy God. The goal was to maintain purity, holiness, and dedication to the Lord. That's why God says when you go into the land, you are to get rid of all of the Canaanites. They're to be gone. Those outside the land, like the Midianites, you can kill. The, you kill the males. All the others can be brought under the protection, the umbrella, become part of the Jewish society. Now, remember, the Jewish society at this point, it didn't, it wasn't so exclusive. Like we get toward the end of the Old Testament, we know that they had other individuals who weren't Jewish by blood, the strangers who were part of their group that wasn't uncommon. So to bring in the Midianite women, to bring in the the kids would have given the opportunity for them to assimilate into Jewish culture and be part of the society. Notice, notice down in verse chapter 21. This, this really helped me out because what, what are they going to do with these women? What are they going to do with the, are they going to make them their wives or, you know, is there like a, a concubine perspective here? Is there, uh, they're just going to become slaves. What What's going to go on? Chapter 21 of Deuteronomy is really interesting. He says, when you go to war against your enemies and the Lord thy God has delivered them into your hands and you have taken them captive and you see among them, cap- the captives, a beautiful woman and you have a desire unto her that you would have her to be your wife. So God is going to give these soldiers the opportunity to say, I find this woman attractive and I would like her to be my wife. But he doesn't say, well, just make it happen right You know, on the battlefield and bring them in and just I say I do. He, he even makes contingencies and says, you need to take some time. You need to make sure that this is appropriate. He says, what you're going to do is you're going to bring her to your home and then you're going to shave her head and you're going to trim her nails and there she shall put on the raiment of her captivity from off of her and she shall remain in your house and bewail her father and her mother a full month. So she's to, to mourn. She's to have time to, uh, to, to process what has happened, that my family is gone and that I am now here. And there's a full month of time that he, he can't just take this, this, this woman and just make her a spoil of war. He's not allowed to do that. Scripture says here that they are to do that. And then after the month is over, you can go into her and be her husband and she shall be your wife. But if you have no delight in a woman who is there on the battlefield, you may not. This is such a key verse to understand, especially when it's attacked against God that says, well, God just allowed people to go take them and make them slaves. Look at what it says. You shall not let her go whether she will, or excuse me, you shall let her go. If you don't have any delight in her, you don't want to marry this woman, you can let her go do what she wants, but you shall not sell her at all for money. You shall not make merchandise of her because she's already been humbled. She's already been through a ton. There's a, there's a respect that's given even to these, these women of war, uh, the casualties of, of the war that's given there. And so God says, you, you can't just bring them in and make them slaves and make them your merchandise and your property or, or merchandise them out. You can't do that, Israel. That is not consistent with a holy and just and righteous God. And so God says they could. They could bring them in and make them, make them wives. But what happens here is interesting. The Jews were allowed to marry. They, we have that. The captives were not to be property. They were, uh, as we just talked about, all those different things that are there. Be careful not to uh, take our cultural perspectives on war and rewrite or discount history. We can't look back and say this is completely inappropriate that they would even consider. It's the way war was done throughout the nations for for generations. We might find it heinous, and we might say, no, it's not an option, but it was done, and and sadly, it's even still done today. Now, what what goes on? All the animals were brought captive as spoils of war. There was an enormous amount of livestock available, Uh, crazy amounts we'll talk about in a moment. All the cities were to be burned or were burned to the ground, and we see really God's power on behalf of his people being demonstrated— for them to be able to go in to get all this stuff, to have all this happen in such a quick, and 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 the casualties of war from the Jewish side, none, as we'll talk about in a moment. It's It's staggering because it was God's power. They were following God, going on God's behalf. Now, the response of Moses, extremely interesting. Look down in verse 13, back in Numbers 31. Moses and Eleazar the priests and all the princes of the congregation went forward, forward to meet them. As the as the groups coming in, they go out outside of camp to meet them outside of camp, and uh, we know why, as we'll talk about again, because they're all unclean. They're they're all been uh, they're not sinful. They're just uh, ritually unclean. They need to stay out camp. So Moses goes out outside of camp, and Moses was wroth with the officers of the hosts, with the captains over thousands and captains over hundreds which came to battle. There is an anger by Moses because, he's going to say, because these women are still alive. Why are these women? Why did you let them be alive? As we talked about in Deuteronomy 21, these guys are fo- or 20. They're following what, what was legitimate. These women were outside the land. We're bringing them back into the, the protection of Israel. They're going to become part of our society. And Moses is going to look and say, no. Now we need to remember, this is not simply a political war. We see, and this is part of the difficulty that we as Americans and even the European perspective has with biblical war. We see a perspective that war is political. It is geopolitical. There are nations going against nations to expand, to, to have control, to have economic control and diversity and oversight and policing actions. But biblically, the wars were spiritual by nature. The wars were often considered holy wars. And what, we'll talk about that in a moment. These women, though, Moses says, you're not bringing, these are the ones who led you astray at Baal Peor. He highlights that. He's verse 16. Behold, these caused the children, these women caused the children of Israel through the council of Balaam to commit trespasses against the Lord in the matter of Peor. And there was a plague among the congregation of the Lord. Have you forgotten that? And Moses looks and says, these women, they're the one who brought us to this point that we're here for this reason. They're the one who brought about the plague and killed 24,000 of your kinsmen. Moses looks and he is not happy. He says, you are going to kill all the boys in this group. All males are to be dead, he says. You're going to do that. We're not going to allow the possibility of a future rebellion. We're going to put this, to, we're going to squash this now. And then he says, you are going to kill all the women. Notice in verse 17, you're going to kill every male among the little ones and kill every woman that hath known man by, trying, by lying with him, but all the women children that have not known a man by lying with him, keep alive for yourselves. Alive for yourselves. Again, the possibilities of if they're young enough or old enough in that young age to potentially be married, they could, or brought in under the protection of Israel to to be part of families, to be part of the culture, to be servants, and then part of the, the nation as a whole. But the kill the women, he says, kill the women who, and it's a little confusing here, or we're not real sure how it all how it all plays out but is it those who are not virgins versus those who are virgins? Is that is that who's to be to be killed? That's a, a legitimate possibility 17:18. Or is it those who are prepubescent versus those who are postpubescent? Those who are able to physically for the purpose of bearing children have gone through puberty and are now able to to lie with a man uh, in, that, in that way, physically, sexually. We're not real sure 100%. We know that they were able to uh, determine how they divided that, but there's debate on all these different dynamics on, on all of that. We're not gonna spend time. It's, it's not worth the moment. We just know that God, and through Moses, this happened, that there were these women who led the children of Israel astray, the men astray, into evil doing, enticed them that way, that age group was put to death. And the younger ones were allowed to be brought in. And there's a, there really is. Keeping these virgin or younger girls, it graciously allowed them to be brought into the community under the protection of God. And what was going to happen is they were going to be able to enjoy the promised land blessings of Israel. They were brought into that protection. There was a grace even in the midst of a harsh, harsh judgment that occurred here. Now, this passage it deals with a lot of difficulties. There's the potential, of the perspective of, is this genocide, holy war, all these dynamics coming up. And it's like, it, and the passage of Scripture gets attacked by liberals, by non-believers very often. We look at this passage, there's no way around the fact that it's very difficult, especially reading through our cultural lenses. We must remember that the narratives of Scripture are not necessarily normative for all believers at all times. Just because Israel was on a holy war does not mean that we are in a holy war or that we are to strive against and to use the sword in order to go out and kill those who would be anti-God, those who would be killing the innocent. We're not supposed to use a passage like this and say, go bomb an abortion clinic. That would be wrong. Is not what the Scriptures, that's not what this passage is teaching us. And yet passages like this get used, used inappropriately. We know that when we look at Numbers 31, no matter what, this is a holy war. This is a legitimate holy war. It is initiated by God, by the divine deity. Now, remember, culturally, during this time, biblically, and even today, there are, there are factions of this world who look and they say, every war is a holy war. But the soldiers in Bible times believed that all their battles were holy wars. Their deities would go with them into battle. They would bring their religious articles and relics into battle because then they had the gods on their side. But Israel legitimately has the one and true and holy and righteous God of this universe. And he is the one who initiates this war. It's not the entire army. It's just a contingent. It's not looking to say, we are going to eradicate and wipe out every single dynamic. If that was the case, God would not have even allowed all of the the girls to survive. This is a passage where he sends a contingent in to to deal with these individuals. The military group. What was it led by? It wasn't led by Joshua, the general. It was led by Phineas, a priest. What was brought in? The objects, the holy objects. So don't make any mistakes about it. Numbers thirty-one. It is a holy war. It is God righteously going and dealing with the sinfulness that the Midianites brought into Israel, and He is going to address that. It was um, as far as a holy war. What's the purpose of it? Why? Why do we talk about what is the purpose? It's the eradication of all impure elements from a region or an ethnicity. Uh, an ethnic territory. It's, so it is going into an area and wiping out the, what is going to happen in Canaan. They're going to go in and they're going to wipe out that which is against God. All of these elements, the high places, the groves, the, the priests, the, the people who are worshiping false gods and trying to draw Israel away because it was designed, holy war was designed so that the Jews could not be pulled into a snare or led into idolatry. It is for a specific time and region here. The holy wars of God here are to purge Israel of the Canaanite influences of idolatry and paganism. It is to give them a holy place, a secure and righteous place for them to stay. How is Israel's holy wars in the Old Testament different from genocide? Genocide, that idea of going in and, and it ought to ought to bring sadness to our hearts when we hear about genocides in the Middle East, when we hear about genocides happening with the, you know, where people are the Chinese are trying to wipe out the Uyghurs. And you you hear about trying to wipe out an ethnic group. That ought to break our hearts. Because those are individuals who need the Lord. And they're being they're being beaten and killed. But how is it how is it different? Israel As a nation is truly under a theocracy. They are the only nation that has been a true theocracy, for there is only one God. And so to have a rule by the one true God, the only nation that has ever truly experienced that is Israel. And at this time, they are under a theocracy. The nation then acted and reacted on the basis of the revelation of God on his behalf. We saw that. God tells Moses, Moses tells the people that you are going to go on behalf of God into these battles. They were used. Israel then was that swift sword of judgment that God uses to bring about his justice. He didn't have to, he could have, like Sodom and Gomorrah, just rained fire down on the Midianites. But he uses Israel to teach them, to use them in a, in a, in a way there to, to bring about his judgment. It's important to note, though, that these nations had ample opportunity to know God. We have them all the way back in Genesis, pre-Exodus, where we have them coming in contact, the Canaanites, as well as the Midianites, those outside of the region. They, they came in contact with people like Abraham, Melchizedek, we know that Balaam, who was from Mesopotamian region, he had a knowledge of Jehovah. He knew about the ways of Israel. We talked about that before. Rahab, when they go in, Rahab knows about God. They, he, she says, "We all know about your God, but' they're still the people are still making a, a concerted effort to deny, to push away and say, "We are not going to deal with it." And God judges sin. God judges the rejection of him. That is a truth throughout all of Scripture. The Amorites, you can go back to Genesis 15, they're going to have over 400 years, but yet they're still going to reject. These are the nations. When you think about what they were doing, they were killing the innocent. They were child sacrifice. They were luring people away into pagan immorality. There was nothing holy about what they were doing, and it required punishment because sin requires punishment from a just and holy God. Genesis 6, the people knew, but they rejected. So God brings about a flood, Sodom and Gomorrah. No one righteous, and yet God, God punishes. It is through history that God does, and, and, and it will continue. God will punish for our sins. God punishes, the wages of sin is death. It's true in the Old Testament, it's true now, it's true in the future. It is, uh, it is just for them to go to war for peace and protection of a nation. And their king, Israel's king, who is God, is saying, I want peace and protection for my people and in our land. How are we going to do that? We need to do it by ridding the people who are going to go against them and and cause me to have to bring about plagues, to cause me to have to bring about judgments upon my people. I want security and blessing for them. I want prosperity. In order to do that, we must rid the nations out of Israel. The Lord's goal was to provide a spiritually and a physically secure home for his people within a limited geographic region so that they could flourish in their land. Notice that it was in in Israel, in Canaan land. Remember, God's war is on wickedness, not on an ethnicity. This is not genocide. He is dealing with individuals who were wicked and enticed people into wickedness. He told his own people, in fact. Now, this, this is how you know that it's not just ethnic genocide against the nation. He tells the Jews later on in Numbers 35, 33 and Leviticus 18, he says, if you follow after them, if you act in wickedness, I will treat you just like I should treat them. You will be out of the land. You will face punishment. You will face my wrath. You will die just like those who are against me. Just like the Canaanites. So it is not God against an ethnic group. It is God against sin. Our holy God hates sin. He is at war with sin and the effects that sin has ravaged upon humanity. And so I, I, it's, it's interesting, even there. It's similar to Matthew 18. When, when sin is dealt with and, and someone is out of the body, they're under, out from under the umbrella of protection of the church because of their sinfulness. God deals with it. Same is true of Israel. You're going to be out because of your sinfulness. How is Israel's holy war different from recent current holy wars or jihads? The word jihad, that holy war, that strife that's occur, we hear it. And this is part of the reason why so many don't understand when they look at uh, Muslims who are in jihad or want jihad, want this holy war, they're looking from a religious perspective, not a geopolitical perspective. They're looking and saying, Allah has told us we are to do this. So therefore we're going to do it. How is, how is Israel's different from that? There's no legitimate holy war today. Why is that? Because there's no theocracy today. God's kingdom is not a national entity. Pastor Just did a part in his end time series on the kingdom of God. It is not Israel. It is not United States. It is not any other nation. God's kingdom is going to be made up cross nations. There's no legitimate theocracy at this point. God did not commission Israel to uh, to use force to propagate faith, which sadly Christians did with the Crusades. They did when they went into foreign countries and you're going to convert or die by the sword. So it's not just Muslims that have done this. We know there are are atrocities in the big picture of Christianity, not necessarily our stripe. But it has happened in the past that they used force in order to propagate faith. God does not do that. Remember Deuteronomy 20, verse 18. He says, the reason we're going to do this is to provide a home area for you that is safe, physically, spiritually secure so that you can grow, so that you can be holy. And then from that, they can be a light to the other nations. That as they see God blessing them, that will be a draw. As they live righteously, it will be a draw to the wicked world to desire what they have and the relationship that they have with God. It was not using force to propagate their faith. We cannot use force to change other people's worldviews. But we can improve on our contributions to the world through the gospel, through love, through kindness, through Christian ethics, through righteous living. We can't, we can't forcibly change other people. It's, and, and this is part of the issue. The political and ideological issues in the Middle East, in China, Russia, or wherever uh, it may be, some of the difficulties we see with the wars, the genocides, the holy wars, they're, gonna, they're, they're never going to be completely solved at a conference table because the moral and ethical judgments made by people and made by those in these political powers are founded on differing faith perspectives. It could be a faith perspective of an Ayatollah in Iran who is looking and saying Allah is who I'm going to put my faith in. It could be from a Russian... Putin or someone else who is, who is atheistic and says, there is no God. I am God, so I do what's best for me and just for my country, and I don't care about all these. It could come from a, a Christian, radical Christian perspective where it says, God is, God is there, and so we're going to go to holy war for God. There's going to be all these perspectives because until there's, there's a unity of a religious mindset, which we know is not going to happen here anytime soon— There's not going to be some of these these dynamics because it's always going to come down to faith in which deity. Which deity is in control? Is it Vishnu? Is it Vashti? Is it Allah? Is it Jehovah God? Is it Jesus Christ? Is it the humans? And whatever the deity is, whoever is on the throne of the life, that is going to be the true authority in that person's mind over all of life. So yes, many Muslims want jihad. They want holy war against other nations because they want to, by force, propagate their faith. But that's not the same as what God did with the Israelites back in the Old Testament. We can't equate the two and use use what you've learned to, to talk with people when that may come up. Though we are not in a holy war, though, remember this, we are in a spiritual battle. Paul talks about Ephesians chapter six. It comes up often. We are in a spiritual battle with sin, with Satan. God is striving against and we're working and there is enmity against God. There are enemies of God. When we do unrighteousness, when others live in sin, it is an affront to our holy God. So there is still a spiritual battle, but we can't call it a holy war. It is a spiritual battle that we face in our life. Now back to Numbers 31. We wanna we want look and say, okay, what, what's happening? It's important to remember that God did not just judge Midian and their sinful actions, but he also brought severe wrath upon his people in Numbers 25. There was equal justice meted out here. God dealt with the, the plague, brought a plague, judging Israel. First, Phinehas staves it off But God is also going to deal with those who enticed towards sin. God's divine justice is in opposition to evildoers and upon those who entice evil, which ought to be a sobering thought for us. That God is God is at strife when we continually practice sin. God is at strife when we lure others into sin. Now, verses 18 to 24 in the passage give us the purification of the unclean because all these individuals who are coming from the battlefield are now unclean. And as we've talked about previously in Numbers 19, if you haven't seen it, go back, watch it, understand about what it means to be unclean. It's not that they're sinful, it's just they're ceremonially unclean. They are to now stay outside the camp for seven days. And as these individuals are outside the camp, they need to be purified. They're going to wash on the third and the seventh day, as Moses tells them and Eliezer reminds them a little bit later on, right around verse 20. And so they're, they're going to do that as well as anybody who's coming back is going to be. And Eliezer gives them some guidelines uh, down in verse 21. This is the ordinance of the law, which the Lord commanded. Only the gold and the silver, the brass, the iron, the tin, the lead, everything that can abide in fire, you shall make it go through the fire and it shall be clean. Nevertheless, if it can't go through that, then it needs to be purified by the water of separation, which is what we talked about in Numbers chapter 19. So there is a purification time before the, the, those who are stained by, this, by death, by uncleanness, can enter back in, to the, the thing. Now everyone's unclean. You know, you get to the end of verse 24. Everyone's now clean. Everything is clean. Everybody's going to come back into the camp. But what do you do with these, all these sheep, all these goats, all these, uh, the cattle? What do you do with the, the, the girls who are brought back in? How does this all happen? The, the ban here is not considered a total ban like Joshua or in Jericho, where uh, everything is to be destroyed. This is, again, that Deuteronomy 20 perspective outside the land. So there are things that are going to come in, items. As you read through the verses, you can read through all of them in 25 through 47. You're going to see 675,000 sheep, 72,000. If you're reading the King James, beeves. I had to actually look that up because I had no clue what in the world a beave was. I mean, all I could think of is, hey, beeve, hey, Wally, you know, going back to leave it to beaver. I was like, what is a beeve? It's, I guess, a, an old English plural for cattle, for beef. So and that makes sense. Uh, 72,000 cattle, 61,000 donkeys, 32,000 young ladies who were brought brought back in. So what, what is to happen with all of these individuals? They were to be divided accordingly. And you can read through verses 27, 28, 29, 30, right in there. 50%, everything is going to be divided 50, 50, 50% to the 12,000 men who went to battle. The other 50% was going to go to the community who was their presence. So there was a provision for both. Now, out of the the 12,000 who go to battle, 0.2%, and you can read that verse 20 and 29 and do the math. You can check me out. And if I'm wrong, well, I'm going to blame it on the three commentaries I got it from. Uh, But the the 0.2% of their 50% was to go to the priest. So a portion of the soldiers was to go to the priest. So those warriors that went to battle, they got 49.8% of all the spoils that were brought in. The 50% that went to the community, 2% of their 50% was to go to the the Levites, to, to support the Levites. So the community really split 48%. And so God lays that out. And that's important because as they go into battle, as they have battles in the future, how do we do this? It lays a pattern. And Eliezer, through God, sets up an ordinance, something that is to happen continually, multiple times, says this is how we're going to divide the spoils of war. Now, I don't know if you remember, I, I love history, uh, General George Pickett, it's, it's stated that he said, whether or not he officially said it or not, at the end of the Battle of Gettysburg, he looks at General Lee after Pickett's charge, and, and Lee tells him to gather his men, and he looks and says, General, I have no division. It's gone. There's, there's nothing there. It's a vastly different moment here in chapter 31. Look, look down in verse, uh, verse 49. It says that the captains of the host came to Moses. Thy servants have taken the sum of the men of war which are under our charge, and there lacketh not one man of us. No one died in this battle. God's protection, God's power was definitely seen to these individuals who are following by faith. It is, it is clearly evidenced. And what happens here is there is this offering then that is brought to, the, to, the, uh, to Moses. Now, notice what it says. Read with me down in verse uh, 49. It's or, uh, verse 50, sorry. We have therefore brought an oblation offering for the Lord that what every man has gotten of the jewels of gold Chains, bracelets, rings, earrings, tablets to make an atonement for our souls before the lord it 's a really interesting phrase to make an atonement for the, our souls, were they feeling that this offering was going to cover their sins? We, we know that you don 't have atonement without blood there 's no covering so so what is being talked about here? what type of what, have they committed a sin? Have they done something wrong? What is, what is being tied here? And there's speculation on numbers of fronts uh, to why they bring this extra offering. Some have said that it is a gratitude of protection, uh, given out of gratitude of protection by God. Because God was so gracious that he, they brought to him this extra offering. And that's a strong possibility to look and say, no one in our company was lost. God protected us. Man, we want to give back more to him. He's given so much to us. Another perspective is found in Exodus chapter 30. Exodus chapter 30, the Jews are told whenever there is a census or a counting of the people, there is to be a half shekel tax that is to be given back to God. So these men, we know they took a sum, they took a counting of their people. And so are they now bringing back this taxes or this offering to God saying, we we did this. And we don't, want to, we don't want to be held accountable for doing a, an inappropriate census, which we know when censuses are taken later on, when David takes the census and does not do it appropriately, there's consequences. So is it they're looking and saying, we want to make sure we do this righteously and in the right way. Strong possibility. I think, I think both are really a good possibility. We do know that the offering is accepted by Moses as a memorial for the Jews and we don't understand all that but we know that that is there and i think it's noble of these men and what's really interesting is actually when you take the half shekel and you take the amount that was brought and you figure out how much there was more brought they they brought more than was necessary to this offering to god so they're giving back partially in gratitude i believe but also because they want to do what's right before the lord they're following by faith what a clear passage But yet, what what an unclear one. But I think some of the things we we clearly see in this passage, it's clear that our God is at war with sinfulness. Therefore, as soldiers of Christ, as followers of Christ, we ourselves are to war with the sinfulness in our lives. We're to do battle. We're not just to give in. We are to fight against that. We are to to clothe ourselves with the armor of God. We are to know what our battles are. We are to reckon ourselves dead to sin and alive to Christ. We are to yield our members to righteousness and not to unrighteousness. It's important to remember God's holy war against sin has not been abandoned. He's not doing it through taking out nations. But God is still at war with sin. He sent his greatest warriors in Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins, to provide that atonement. But he still expects us to be doing our best through his power, through his strength, to have victory over sin, which we can have, Romans chapter six. Read through it, identify, look, look through that passage and know that God does not expect us to just cave, but he expects us to battle and, to, to, and that we can have victory over sin. And God expects cleansing when unclean. He expects us to be right with him, to restore the fellowship when necessary, that when we sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Themes that are consistent through this book. And that's why Numbers 31 ties it all nicely together, brings it all in. But I wanna end with one passage. Would you go over to Revelation chapter two with me? Revelation chapter two sort of highlights God's full perspective on sinfulness, and God's full perspective on his, his dealing with sin. He says in Romans chapter two or Revelation chapter 2, unto the angel of the church in Pergamum right, to the pastor of the church there, these words of him who has a sharp two-edged sword. We've just talked about the dying by the sword, the judgment of God that is upon sinfulness. He says, I know where you dwell. I know where Satan's throne is. Yet, you do have this good thing about you. You hold fast my name. You do not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. So he brings in some historical parts with the church of Pergamum, but he says to them, it's a wicked place around you, and yet you haven't denied me. You're trying to live by faith. You're doing your best, but I do have a few things against you. God says, this is Jesus Christ speaking to the church. I do have a few things against you. Some of you hold to the teaching of Balaam about greed, about life, and and about all those things are more important than honoring and glorifying God, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel about how to entice others to sin, to encourage others not to live holy. He says, don't let that be a part of your life so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. Therefore, what what does Christ say? Repent. Repent of the sinfulness, repent of the enticing of others into sin, the leading of others astray. He says, if not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. Christ says, I will bring punishment and I will bring swift punishment to those who will not repent of their sins, to those who live in continuous sinfulness, to those who entice others to sin. That's the dealings of Numbers 31 that those who are, have enticed others to sin, those who are willing to live in sin, were judged and will be judged by God. Because God is at war with sinfulness. I don't want to be on the side of God as my enemy. So therefore, what must I do? Repent. Ask God for forgiveness. Keep short account of your sin. Deal with it. We will fall. We understand that but ask for cleansing and know that he is the faithful and just God who will forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all of our unrighteousness. God, I pray that you would help us to be righteous before you in the times that I fail or my friends who are listening fail. Lord, I pray that you would help us to ask for your forgiveness, for it's in your name we pray. Amen. Thanks so much. Have a good day.